Let's open our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. On Sunday mornings, I like to preach, a, for the most part, a topical or subject-type message. And then Sunday evenings, I like to expound some scripture to you. And uh, I believe that does us some good, too. So, 1 Peter chapter 2, if you will, verse 1. Therefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Now, if you look at verse 1, it tells us what we are not to have. We might call this the Christian's uh, a spiritual diet. You know, if you're on a diet, you have to do without certain things, and there's certain things you need. And in verse 1, it tells you what not to eat, right? In verse 2, it tells you what you need to feed upon. And so it says, lay aside all malice. And it says, and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings. So we know this is not good for a Christian to have these things. We don't want these in our lives. We don't want to be envious. We don't want to be a hypocrite. We don't want to be filled with guile and malice, that is, hate toward one another. And certainly we want to refrain from evil speakings. But then it says, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk, that is, the unadulterated milk. The, it's not spoiled with anything. I was reading one uh, source on this verse, and it says milk's mi- mixing chalk with it, so that you couldn't tell, you know. You could put chalk and stir it up and dissolve it in there. It would be, it would be milky looking, but it wouldn't be milk, would it? So it's unadulterated milk of the word that you may grow thereby. And when it says as newborn babes, we know that uh, as newborn Christians that they need the milk of the word. But this this particular passage not only refers to just new Christians, but it means as God's children in general. It's a general term. Now, we know there are other passages that speak of uh, feeding uh, some that are immature and that are yet carnal with milk, and they haven't grown. But this is the milk of the Word that every Christian, see, it has the meaning that all Christians need it. It's not only as newborn babes, but we're all as babes in the sight of God in the sense that we need the sincere milk of the Word. And I believe that's the implication here. So we always need the pure Word of God, don't we, as believers. We need to digest it. We need to meditate in it. We need to let it feed us. And it is food for our soul. You know, uh, Job of old said, I have esteemed, I have accounted, esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. We know that we need food to live, don't we? We need food for our bodies to have strength. But he says, I've counted the word of God, the words of his mouth, more than my necessary food. He was talking about his spiritual food. And people that are fed upon the word, Christians that will feed upon the word, will be strong in the Lord and in the power of his mind. Uh, Let me give you some help maybe on this. Turn to the book of Acts, if you will. The book of Acts. To show you the strength that comes from the word. As far as one of the deacons in the uh, book of Acts is concerned, let's look in Acts chapter 6, if you will. Begin with verse 2. 
verse 1 states the problem, the neglect of certain widows in their daily needs. And verse 2 says, Then the twelve, these are the apostles, called the multitude of the disciples unto them, and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. In other words, these deacons that were about to be chosen to minister in this fashion were to be filled with the Spirit of God. They were to be wise in the things of God, filled with wisdom. But the apostles said, We will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Now then, in verse 5, And the same pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, or the Holy Spirit. He was full of faith, and he was full of the Holy Spirit. Now look, how did he get faith? Faith cometh by what? Hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So if he was full of faith, he was full of the word. And full of the word, he would be full of the Holy Spirit. So these are vitally connected. Some people try to separate those and say, the Holy Spirit, that's an experience. Well, it may be an experience, but it's, it's practical too. You study God's Word, and you get faith in God, and the Holy Spirit is there because He is sent to bear witness of the truth. And His presence is just as real as if you had some outlandish experience that some folks tell about. And it's just as genuine and just as powerful. Now then, let me show you the power. Let's look down on verse um, 8. And Stephen, well, verse 5, you read it. It says that Stephen was a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. Now look down at uh, verse 8. And Stephen full of faith and power. See? So look, you have faith, you have the Holy Spirit, you have full of faith and power. Faith and power are linked together. And what, what links faith to the individual? The Word of God. So what I'm saying is that we need to feed upon the Word of God to have any faith and to have any spiritual power and to have any of the Holy Spirit's presence and guidance. And the person that neglects the Word cannot expect to have faith and he cannot expect to have power and he cannot expect the Holy Spirit's infilling. That's just biblical teaching. That's all that is. Just simple, down to earth, what God's Word says. That's what it amounts to. And if you uh, see a fellow and he says, oh, he's full of the Spirit of God and he never touches his Bible, never studies, never reads, he may be full of something else. He may be full of a lot of hot air or emotion. But if you're full of the, of the Word of God, God says, I'll fill you with power and I'll fill you with my Holy Spirit and I'll fill you with wisdom and you can stand up and, and know where you stand for God. All right, let's get back to this. Uh, other Christians, now, uh, let me show you. There are other Christians that are babes uh, in a different sense of the word. First Corinthians chapter 3, even though we are told that as newborn babes in the passage we read to you at first, and that we're to desire the sincere milk of the word, which is applicable to all Christians, we're always to desire the sincere milk of the word. But here in First Corinthians chapter 3, if you have it, Paul was rebuking the Corinthians because they remained as babies or as infants in spiritual things. Now then, evidently, they were not desiring much of the sincere milk of the Word, or they were still like a little baby on the bottle, still needing just milk, mother's milk, uh, and could not get out of that infancy stage. Now, look at this. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, I mean 3, verse 1, 
And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. In other words, you're just like babies that will not grow. You will not grow and become uh, children and, and take in some meat and solid foods. And you will not grow up and be young, uh, young people. Or you will not grow up to adults where you can take the solid meat and good solid food to strengthen the body. They remained as babes. You know, it's not a shame to be a baby. But it, it would be an awful kind of a, uh, what should I say, a freak of nature that would remain a baby all of our lives, wouldn't it? Suppose we were still here, every one of us, with a bottle in our mouth and running around crying, Mom and Daddy. Wouldn't that look silly? Well, we're supposed to grow up. We're supposed to grow up and become more mature as, as our uh, natural age uh, comes uh, goes by. But the same way with Christians. We have a lot of Christians that due to neglect, they may have been saved for years, but due, due to neglect of the Word of God and are not feeding themselves upon the Word of God, they're just still kind of infants. They remain there. And that, that's, that's uh, uh, not natural, is it? It is not natural in the natural realm, and it's not natural and not, should not be true in the spiritual realm. He says, Paul says, I fed you with milk and, and not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither are you yet now able. For ye are yet carnal, for whereas there is among you endings and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men. See? In other words, you're still carnal. You have not grown spiritually. That's what Paul was saying. Now then, in Hebrews chapter 5, if you will, beginning with verse 12, uh, well, let's read verse 11. Hebrews 5, 11. He says, Of whom we have many things to say, and hard to be uttered, seeing you are dull of hearing. See, Paul, I believe Paul wrote Hebrews. Some dispute that, but I believe Paul is the writer here. But anyway, we find this in this book of Hebrews, chapter 5, verse 11. He says, I have a lot of things to say to you, but... It's so hard to teach you since you're so dull of hearing, and the dull of hearing had to do with their immaturity. In other words, they just hadn't grown enough for him to teach them really very deep things of God. Sometimes I'm tempted as a preacher to say something or use a phrase that I know half will not understand possibly. There may be a great deal, a great many people that would not understand even what, even the implication. You know, if you refer to something like uh, that spiritual rock that followed uh, Moses and the children of Israel in the wilderness, you'd have to go to the source of it and explain it for people to understand. The Bible says they drank, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. In other words, going back and showing that it, that rock that they drank of was typical of Christ, who is the, the fountain of life and the water of life to all believers. But you see, sometimes we're tempted to just use phrases. But notice here, uh, in verse uh, 12, For when for the time, you still have uh, Hebrews 5, verse 12, For when for the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. In other words, you need to be taught your ABCs yet. You're still in kindergarten. That's what Paul was saying. He says, you ought to be teaching others by now, and you're still in kindergarten. You have need to be taught, the first principles. And are become as such, such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. In other words, he's saying that they had no experience and no maturity 
For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness. In other words, he has no experience. In fact, you may have a marginal reference that says, hath no experience in the word of righteousness. Is unskillful. Uh, for he is a babe. Verse 14, But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age. And you know what that means? That means they're mature or perfect or mature. It doesn't mean perfect as sinlessness. It means perfect or maturity. That the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished in the good, the good, all good works, as Paul is talking about in uh, 2 Timothy, I believe it's 3.16, where he says, uh, The word of God... All scriptures given by inspiration of God, profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect. He's talking about maturity, truly furnished unto all good works. And that's what it means here. Strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Back in our passage now in First Peter 2. So we see in verse 1 what we're not to have and what we're not to feed upon. A lot of people feed upon those things that are uh, in verse 1 and therefore they ruin their spiritual diet and they feed on the things they shouldn't eat and it ruins them, doesn't it? All malice and guile and hypocrisies, envies and evil speakings. But in verse 2 it tells us to desire the sincere milk of the Word. It means having a yearning desire for it. Really want the Word of God. Really have a yearning for it. Have you ever seen someone, you know, every once in a while I get this way. I get a yearning for an ice cream cone, you know. <laughs> you know, chocolate dip cone. <laughs> but I get a yearning. Have you seen people and they say, I just really want uh, some kind of food they, that's their special life. Well, we need to have just as great a yearning in a spiritual way for the Word of God. Do you have that yearning for the Word of God? Do you want to just really feed upon it and it's so sweet and so good a food for the soul? Uh, it says it's like the honey in the honeycomb. We go back to the Psalms. And, and it's good for us. And we find not only the, the solid meat, but we find the dessert is there as well. All the food for our soul is found in the Word of God. Why do we neglect it so? Why do we not read our Bibles? Why do we not attend the house of God and feed upon the Word of God? Okay, now then, verse 3. If so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. In other words, not only is the Word suitable to our taste and fills our uh, uh, desires for spiritual food, but we've tasted something else in a spiritual way that the Lord Himself is gracious. We've come to experience that by our personal taste. You have a, let's see if I have the reference for it. It's uh, in the book of Psalms. Let's see. Psalm 40, I believe. No, Psalm 34. Psalm 34. And verse uh, 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. See, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. This whole passage of the 34th Psalm will be a blessing to you. But uh, Peter says, we've tasted that the Lord is gracious. Back now to a text. Always hold your place where we're studying so we can come back without losing the train of thought. All right? Verse 4. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. To whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. You know we could spend the rest of the night right here 
because there are so many things to be studied. First of all, let's notice, it says, to whom coming. That's not just like we come to Him. We come to Him for salvation. But we're always coming. We're always approaching. We have a, a continuous uh, entrance into the presence of God. He's, we come to Him by faith, and we come to Him in prayer, and we come by the new and living way, as uh, Hebrews 10 puts it, that is consecrated for us through the veil. In other words, He doesn't mean just one singular coming here as coming to Christ for salvation. How often we've come to Christ tonight in prayer, time and time again, in our worship, in every way, we're coming often. And we find that we're coming as unto a living stone. Christ is as unto a living stone. He's not like a rock out here in the wilderness that's solid and it's of solid matter and that you could strike a hammer on and not chip it away or anything. He's not like that. He's a living stone. He had life before. He is the eternal life. And He was uh, crucified. He was put to death in the flesh, but He rose again. And He says, I am He that liveth and was dead, but behold, I am alive forevermore. Revelation 1. He says, I did live, I was dead, and now I'm alive, and I'll always be alive. Now then, I want you to notice. Peter, in saying this, notice who's writing this book. Notice who's writing this epistle. It's Peter, the apostle, that some claim to be the first hope, and in a priestly function and fashion that he served, but he didn't. And we'll get into that priesthood business in a moment. But it, Peter himself says we come to Christ as a living stone. I want you to go back to the book of Matthew, chapter 16, if you will. As a living stone. Keep that in mind, that thought of a living stone. Look at Matthew 16 now. We will begin reading verse 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? Never mind what men say, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. He says we're... Now hold that right there and hold your place. But he said we're coming to Christ as a living stone. Right here he says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Notice the correlation of those two thoughts. The living stone, the Son of the living God. And we're going to see how the stone connects with it in a moment. Follow it on down. Uh, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. So the, the Heavenly Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, revealed to Peter that Jesus was indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now look at the next verse. And Jesus continues his answer. And I say unto thee that thou art Peter. And he means a little... He used the word P-E-T-R-O-S in the Greek, which means a little rock. Thou art a little rock. You're a stone. You're a rock. You're a rock, all right. But he says, and upon this rock, and he used a different word. Both of these words, Peter and rock, are the same, uh, are rock, but they're both a different words. You're a little rock, but he says, upon this rock, or P-E-T-R-A, a great bedrock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against me. Now, what was Jesus saying? He's saying, Peter, you are a little stone, all right. 
But I'm going to build that church. I'm going to build my church on the solid rock of myself. I am that rock. He wasn't building the church on Peter's confession, though we need to confess Christ as Savior. He was building the church upon himself. He wasn't building it upon Peter, a little rock. But he's building upon himself as the rock of Gibraltar, as a solid, huge, massive, great bedrock. And that's why Peter refers to Jesus. When you come over here, we'll find... Now turn back to 1 Peter chapter 2. He says in verse uh, uh, 4, "...as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God, and precious." Uh, drop down, we'll come back and pick up verse 5 in a moment, and the rest of that, but drop down to verse 6. Wherefore also it is contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone. He's still referring to Christ. He's a living stone. He's the chief cornerstone. Elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. You see what Peter's doing? Now, it's important... Beloved, it's very important that you realize who's writing. Peter, of whom Romanists claim that the church was built upon him and that he's to be the first pope and to be acting in a priestly fashion, denies all this by referring to Christ as a living stone. He lived before, he died, he was buried, he rose again the third day, he's living forever, and he is that chief cornerstone. And I'm not, Peter didn't say I'm referring to myself, that Jesus built the church upon me, the rock. He's saying I'm referring back to that living stone. And he's that stone that is elect and precious, and it's disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and perfect and uh, the head of the corner. Verse 7 says, And to you therefore which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. And he's still referring to Christ. We'll come back to that in a moment. But drop back in verse uh, 4. We're not finished with that. Look at verse 4. To whom coming we come to Christ as unto a living stone disallowed indeed of men but chosen of God and precious. In other words, we have the, the fact there that that uh, even Israel uh, refused him. Look in what look at what, what Paul I mean what Peter preaches on the uh, shortly after Pentecost in Acts chapter four. Acts four verse ten. Be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth whom you whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him Doth this man stand here before you whole? He's referring to the healing of the man at the gate called Beautiful. Now then, Peter and John. Now Peter says, verse 11, look at it. This is the stone which was set at naught, see, disallowed indeed of men, set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. He says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. You see how Peter refers to the Christ that they rejected or disallowed. And he says, uh, this is the stone that was set at naught of you builders. You should have accepted him. He was the promised Messiah, and you set him aside. You crucified him. God raised him up. And he says, there's not salvation to be found in anyone else but him. Now then, back to 1 Peter, chapter 2. So when you read in verse 4, it says, Disallowed indeed of men. That's what uh, Peter was referring to in Acts 4, verse 10 through 12. But chosen of God and precious. Precious really has to do. We know he's precious as far as being dear. And we'll run across that word again 
in verse 7, Unto you therefore that believe he is precious. We know he's precious as far as being dear, but he's precious as far as being valuable as well. If you turn to, just look in 1 Peter chapter 1, you still have it probably right across the page there. In verse uh, 19 it says, You're redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. And there it's talking about the value. It's more precious than of gold. It's more valuable than of gold and silver, uh, which is referred to as uh, being the Old Testament redemption money that was put out, coined money for the redemption, silver redemption money. And so it's more precious, more valuable. Now, we love to think of Jesus in, in both ways, don't we? We not only love to think of Jesus, and we should think of him as dear. He's approachable. He's available for every person to come to. Jesus is not a standoffish person to anyone. If you want to approach Christ, you can. He's made it possible for you to come. He says, in fact, he invites you to come. He says, come unto me, all you that labor in a heavy labor. The fellow said, I'm afraid to approach God. Well, it's your own fault then, because he has made himself unapproachable. And he, he has made himself available for you. And he's even invited and persuaded. And he said, come. And it's not only an invitation that you can, but he's persuading you to come. Unto me all you labor in a heavy labor. So right here, look at this again. You have 1 Peter 2, and down in verse um, 4, what says, Chosen of God and precious. Now verse 5 says, Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. He says, He's a living stone and we're living stones too. You're lively stones. In other words, you're built up. Notice two things here. You built up a spiritual house, that's like the temple, and holy priesthood. Do you see something here? We're not only the temple, but we're the priests. You see, in the Old Testament, you had the temple, or the tabernacle, and you had the priest that went in. But the Lord says, on Christ's solid foundation, the living stone, He says, I'm going to make you both the house and the ones that uh, worship in the house. We're the building and we're the, the priests that function in the building. And notice he didn't say we are the holy priesthood. He says ye are. You see? You know what uh, Peter's referring to? There's not a place in the New Testament where, new, where ministers of the New Testament are classified as priests except in this right as other believers. Did you know that? I'm not a priest. Don't pretend to be. I'm a preacher. And I'm a teacher of the Word. And I'm to lead the flock because that is ordained and taught in the Scriptures, but I'm not to act in any priestly function whatsoever except for my own benefit as a priest, as a believer priest. And I can do that as you can do that, and I cannot do it any better than you, can you uh, do that or with any more uh, pre preeminence or priority than you can. See, that's the teaching of the New Testament priesthood. You're your own priest. People come to me down the aisle and if they want to pray with me or want me to pray with them, I'm fine, I'll pray with them. But you know, they go just straight to God as I do. And sometimes a lot quicker. You know, I have my own problems to deal with. And if, if I take care of those, of course, I have access, but I'm not, I'm, I'm saying that, that it's no plus to them for them to come and me to pray with them except for me to guide them in the Word of God and the truth of God that they may, you know, a lot of fundamental Baptist preachers are taking a priestly function nowadays. Brother, they're just standing there between uh, 
the, the sinner in heaven and hell. Not so. Not so for any of us. None of us can stand there. We have a great high priest, Jesus the Son of God. He's seated on the right hand of God. And all I can do as a preacher is to, is to fulfill the ministry that God has ordained of preaching. It's, he says He's left some pastors and teachers. And I can teach you the Word of God and tell you that you need to get right with God and you go to God in prayer and whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved and that's your responsibility. And I can pray with you and I can pray for you and you can likewise pray with me and pray for me. In fact, Paul encouraged others. He says, and pray for me that God will help me to be able to open my mouth with boldness to make known the mystery of the gospel. Right? Paul says, all prayer and supplication in the Spirit in Ephesians chapter 6. And he says, for me also. Look in Ephesians 6. I could quote these things to you, but I'd like for you to see it sometime with your own eyes. It says in verse 18, praying with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. This is the priestly function of all believers. See? And he told the Ephesians to pray in this way for him, for each and every one. And then he says, and for me. Look at that. And for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. See that? Paul says, I want you to pray for me that I can preach. And every preacher, Brother Randy and I both, desire your prayers and covet your prayers that we can minister the Word. And apart from the the working of the Holy Spirit and the presence of the Holy Spirit we amount to very little. And so we need that presence. We need that power. We need that guidance. And we need the prayers of every Christian. So if you think, if you ever think there's not anything you can do in the way of service, if you say, oh, I don't teach a class and I don't play the piano and I can't lead the singing, don't ever think you're, you're not with some weapons because that weapon of prayer. You can be a prayer warrior. You can be a witness. You can sit there and uh, it's just like uh, Brother Walker saying amen this morning. My wife said, Brother Walker gave you several amen. And I said, yeah, and it helped me to preach. See, amen. I like those amens. One preacher said it's like uh, if you go out here and say sick them to a bulldog. He's going to go get them. Right? Get after them. So, uh, you know, we need the encouragement and the strength that comes from people receiving the Word. I noticed these young people this morning on the back row look like maybe college age uh, people on that back seat on here. And very receptive. I was so thrilled to see that especially when I got off onto those uh, thoughts about every wind of doctrine and how people were going after every different cult and sect and, and then how the hindrances of people not believing the Bible and all that. And, and I could get a, a formation. I could get a reception from those folks. They were, they were liking that. They were agreeing with me. And yet uh, they seemed to be so sincere in wanting to hear the truth about it and uh, wanting to hear that we should not follow that kind of thing, you know? And I believe it's good when you have reception to the Word of God. It's good that it's received. All right, look at this again. Uh, you know, the reason I spend so much time in one verse is because there's, there's so much more there than usually we give credit for. I'm not trying to just overanalyze it, but I don't want us to miss some of the important things. Look in verse 5 again. 
It says, ye also, as living stones. So we're the house, aren't we? We're the building. We're the temple. Are built up a spiritual house, but we're also the priest and holy priesthood. See, that's a different thought altogether. We're living stones that makes up the temple, right? But it's a spiritual temple. And we're also going to function as a priest in that temple. And he says we're to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. It's through Jesus Christ that we offer up spiritual sacrifices and they're made acceptable to God. And that's what we're to do. What are, what are spiritual sacrifices for you and I to offer up? Have you ever thought about we don't kill animal sacrifices, do we? That's out. Jesus paid one sacrifice for sin forever, right? To put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. There's not any need any longer for any uh, animal sacrifices, any poor innocent victims dying and bleeding and offering and being burned on a, a burnt sacrifice altar. Not any need of that. Jesus said, I fulfilled all of that. When I died on the cross, I offered myself as a whole burnt offering to God and for the sacrifice of our sins. And he offered himself uh, without any reserve and in all the capacities that the Levitical priesthood required of an offering. You go back there and there's a sin offering, trespass offering, there was a meat offering, the whole burnt offering, and he, he did all that. Everything that's implicated by those sacrifices was fulfilled in the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Everything. Not one thing is like it. Now, if you look at this, it says to offer up spiritual sacrifices. How are we to offer up spiritual sacrifices? Look in Hebrews chapter 10. Um, not 10, verse uh, chapter 13, I beg your pardon. Hebrews chapter 13, if you will. The last chapter of Hebrews. Let's begin reading with verse 13. It says, Let us go, let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, that is unto Christ, where he was sacrificed, bearing his reproach. In other words, we bear the reproach of the cross. We believe that it's by the cross of Jesus that men are saved. Right? And only that way, uh, Paul speaks of the offense of the cross. If he were to compromise the uh, sacrifice of Christ he, in another place, he says, then is the offense of the cross ceased. In other words, if we can't stand for what the cross means, that it brings salvation, that Jesus shed his blood, he offered himself an atonement, sacrificed for our sins, then there's no offense. If we agree with the world and with the worldly religion that you say by works, then the offense of the cross has ceased, isn't it? Oh, you don't have any problem if you go along with the multitude, do you? We'll get back to this in a moment. Hold your place in Hebrews 13. But what I'm trying to say is this. Look at me for a moment. If you go along with the world's religion and say, oh yes, we believe in a, a modernist religion, we believe in a, a salvation by good works, and we're going to observe the law, and we're going to go to heaven because we're good, and try to be honest, and try to do right, and we go to church, and, and we've even been baptized in all of the other things that uh, taken into the Christian life is general practice. See, there's no offense in the cross. Because you're, you're taking, taking down that standard by which you should live and die. And that is that the only way that you can have salvation is by the redemptive shed blood of Jesus Christ when he died on the cross of Calvary. And the Bible says he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. He died for our sins. The Bible says that, that, that the cross is a symbol of the curse. He says he took the curse uh, 
upon himself, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on the tree. He bore the curse of our sins and the penalty of our sins and, and gave himself a sacrifice for our sins. You leave the cross out and you'll have a lot of friends. Or you'll have a world of friends. You'll have a world of religious friends. You'll have a world of professed Christian friends. But when you bring the cross into the picture and say, Friend, I have to beg difference to differ with you that I'm not saved because I'm good and I'm not saved because I've kept the law because I've broken it and I'm condemned by it and I'm not saved because uh, uh, I'm a pretty good fellow but I am only saved because Jesus Christ paid for my soul's salvation when he died on the cross the old rugged cross have you ever tried to picture your, uh, what it was when Jesus took uh, that curse of sin upon himself have you ever tried to think of the fact that at that time he was, he was not only suffering physically, but he was presenting himself as a sacrifice to God? He was saying, I'm going to do it for the sake of the salvation of mankind, of whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. And he was crowned with a crown of thorns. He was beaten. He was smitten. And the physical sufferings are one thing. But Isaiah said he was despised and rejected of men. You ever just pictured what it would be like if you, and you, we might deserve certain punishments that would come to us, if you were taken in the midst of the, all the all the people here in Red Oaks, just this group here, taken out before them, condemned to death, stripped of your clothing, naked to your shame, and taken out and led to, to a cross on the side of a hill, nailed to that cross and then lifted up and put in the ground, even you think of the humiliation and let alone the physical suffering of the situation but then think of Jesus the only begotten son of God who did nothing to deserve any kind of infliction of wounds or sorrows or punishment at all and yet he was willing to do this for our salvation when you think of that very deeply we sing a song up Calvary's mountain one dreadful morn Walk Christ my Savior, weary and warm, facing for sinners death on the cross, that he might save them from endless loss. Blessed Redeemer, precious Redeemer. Seems now I see him on Calvary's tree and all that. So it, it's worthy of our thought once in a while to think of what Jesus endured for us. Back to this. In Hebrews 13, we're talking about the Christian as a priest offering up spiritual sacrifices. Look at it. It says in verse... Um, 15, by him therefore, by Christ, who died without this camp, who died for our sins, verse 15, by him therefore, let us offer the sacrifice, look, the sacrifice, you have the word, of praise to God continually, that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. In other words, the first sacrifice you can offer, one thing, you can praise God and thank God and bless God for your salvation in Jesus Christ. And he calls it the sacrifice of praise. Right? And then it says, But to do good and to communicate, forget not, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Look at that. To do good would be, mean our lives have to be lived for God. We offer our bodies. It's put this way in Romans 12, verse 1, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, right? So yourselves. Uh, and we'll sum it up in a moment, but look. We have our praises that are offered as sacrifices uh, to do good and to communicate, forget not. 
For with such sacrifices, you have verse 16, God is well pleased. Now that's the Christian sacrifices. When he says to do good, that means our lives are put on the altar. See? Uh, our mouths thank and praise and bless God for our salvation. And then what? Communicate. There's another word. That's peculiar, isn't it? You know what the word communicate means? It means giving. It means distribution of our means as well. We might say our praises and our persons and our purses, if you want three Ps. Our praises and our persons and our purses. See? Uh, uh, Paul speaks of communication. He says uh, that no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving. See? That's the same meaning here, to do good and to communicate, to give as Christians. And we're talking about giving more than just uh, in words. We're talking about giving what we have wherever it's needed and led by the Spirit of God. We're talking about Christian giving. And it says, with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Now, if you want to offer, uh, uh, sum up the sacrifices that we're told here, we're sp- simply saying that it's our praises and thanks, isn't it? Giving thanks to God continually, the fruit of our lips. And he says, uh, to do good and to communicate, our persons, we give ourselves, and then our purses, we give what we have. It's to whatever God requires of us in, in the normal fashion of communicating. Like in Paul's case, the, the church at Philippi, he says, uh, no church except you communicated with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. And he says, my God shall supply all your need. According to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. You know, a lot of people take that verse and say, God promised to supply all my needs. Well, wait a minute here. Let's see if he did. I know I'm taking you on some sidetracks, but I want to do it anyway. Philippians chapter 4, if you will. You know, sometimes people claim promises of God that's not for them. They haven't fulfilled the requirements. You haven't fulfilled the requirements. Now, God will take care of us. That's true. But you know, God expects some things of us, too. Look in uh, Philippians 4, and I want want you to read, beginning with verse 15, uh, verse 14. Notwithstanding, ye have well done, that ye did communicate. You have that word, don't you? You have Philippians 4, and verse uh, 14. That ye did communicate with my affliction. Now, you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated. You have the word again, don't you? Communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. Now, look. For even in Thessalonica, you sent once and again unto my necessity. In other words, the church at Philippi supported Paul in his missionary endeavors, right? You can't, can't come to any other conclusion. And he says, no other churches were doing it, but you felt it necessary. You did it. Now look, not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. Paul wanted them to know it wasn't because he was uh, trying to suck all the money out of them he could. He wanted them to know that he appreciated their support. See? Right? And he says, you're going to get a blessing out of it. Now look, follow it on down. But I have all in the bound. He says, I am full, I have plenty, having received of Epaphroditus the things which are sent from you. Now look, an odor of a sweet smell. Now look, a sacrifice acceptable. Isn't that what we've been teaching? Well-pleasing to God. 
We said communication was a sacrifice that God is well pleased with. Okay? Now then, connect with verse uh, 19. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. You see how the, the scripture ties itself together? Someone says, I'm going to claim that promise of God. Philippians 4.19, that says, God, my God's going to supply all my needs according to his riches in glory. And they never give a penny to the church and never give anything to missions and they never communicate anything and they think they can claim that promise. Not so, brother. Thank for you. You know, if you, if you communicate as God has specified, you offer the sacrifices of giving that he's uh, uh, put down in his word, then you can certainly claim that promise. You see, it has something attached to it. It's just like we say, the Lord will forgive me of all my sins. He will. But he says, if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you your trespasses. So you see, it's conditioned upon a forgiving spirit in ourselves. And if you go around and say, I can't forgive that brother, don't expect God to forgive you. You see, he's got the negative and the positive side of these things, and you can't just claim that good side and leave the other side undone. You've got to, to receive it all. 